Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can learn more at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome Josh Mandel-Brem at Camp4 Therapeutics. Very excited to have you on today, Josh. Thanks so much for having me, Rahul. It's always a pleasure to catch up with you. So Josh, to kick us off, walk us through the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, it'd be my pleasure. And I, and I hope as far as the arc goes, I'm still on the part that's going up and not saturated at the top. So I think you are. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. And I'll try and keep it more succinct. So I come from a family of scientists. I always like to lead with that because it sort of explains a little bit how I am where I am, meaning I'm a biology major, but I, I don't have a PhD or an MD, but science is very familiar with me. And my father, my mother, my sister all have postdocs, PhDs, professors. So you can imagine our dinner table conversations are really riveting. So, you know, I found my way to biology quite naturally, although at the time when I graduated from Washington, St. Louis, this was 2005, there really wasn't, well, I can say this very definitively, there was not the type of biotech industry that exists today. And what I mean is Genentech was, you know, one of the preeminent companies, the biotech. Regeneron was not Regeneron yet. Vertex wasn't Vertex yet. Biogen was not doing so great. And of course, you had Pfizer and Merck and the other pharma companies. You did not have a sprawling landscape of 800 private and public biotechs. In fact, there were very few small biotechs. So when I went to go get a job, it was really quite amusing. It was like, well, you could go get a PhD, you could go into pre-med, or you're sort of on your own. Good luck. And that was fascinating. And so through a range of fortunate situations and just life circumstances, I actually did find myself in Boston working for a startup biotechnology company called Hydrobiosciences. It was spun out of Harvard, two founders, David Clapham and Mark Keating, backed by Polaris and others, ironically, who I've gotten to know very well through just serendipity. And I started in the lab doing electrophysiology. And really my intention there was twofold. One was, you know, what is this thing biotechnology and, and how do I feel about it? And two, Perhaps I want to go get a PhD so I can have a career in biotechnology versus academia. So that was my intention. And as I worked there within the first year, and this is a company that probably had, I don't know, 30 people and three of them were non-scientists, let's say, it became readily apparent to me that I was completely interested in the intersection of business and science. And it also became more than obvious. I knew nothing about business. And I, I mean, like literally nothing. I couldn't even follow the conversations. And so... I sought out some people who had been introduced to me who had actually made that transition, although they were much more sophisticated, they had MDs or PhDs, and we kind of mapped out different ways to get to where I wanted to be. That is on the business side. And ultimately, I came to the conclusion I was young, I didn't make that much money, and it was okay to take some debt and bet on myself. So I went back to Michigan two years later, so 2007, to get an MBA, which you know is kind of four months of education compressed into two years. And I'm saying that very deliberately, right? Because there's a lot of other uh, things that happened that I think are still valuable from a life experience perspective. And at the time I went was 2007. So remember, Genentech was still partially independent. Uh, they hadn't been fully acquired by Roche. And I thought, I want to be a Genentech. That is the company. And I thought I want to do business development, which really in my mind was how the bigger companies got big, was through really smart transactions, either with academic institutions or, or smaller biotech companies that were emerging, et cetera. So two things happened. One, I did get an internship at Genentech. However, it was in marketing. And I love Genentech. 
And during that summer I was there, interestingly, they did get fully acquired by Roche. So that was fun to watch, but I was not very good at marketing. So that made my decision easy because there was no decision. They didn't want me to come back and I can't blame them. And so I was sort of taken to the point where, okay, what do I want to do? And I want to do business development. And at the time, Genzyme was in a really good spot. And so through a different story I won't share, I found my way. Well, I'll share a bit of it. It's actually kind of fun. I, I ended up at Genzyme and I had called somebody who I knew at Hydro Biosciences who did not know me that well. And I said, do you remember me? My name's Josh. And she said, yes, I do. And you know, if you're ever in town, Ring me up and we'll have you over to Genzyme. And so I bought a plane ticket that night to Boston. I said, it turns out I'll be in Boston next week. I slept on my buddy's couch. And to her credit, and this is Paula Reagan, and, and she's on my board today, and I have a lot of respect for Paula. She's done a lot for me. She was true to her word. She invited me in. She set up some conversations. And that led to me eventually getting a job there in business development. And I thought that was the most wonderful job in the world. There's this Henry Tamir, but there's all these talented people. And aside from being a place that was all about rare diseases, Jensen was all about talent and development of people, which is a theme for me. It's not just about medicine. It's about people. And, and that that's why I, I was really fortunate to be there. The unfortunate part is they went through the manufacturing snafu in 2009. Ralph Worth and Carl Icahn came in for shareholder value discussions that led to eventually Sanofi taking them over. And I had a choice. I could stay or leave. And I decided to stay because I still wasn't making that much money. And I was still definitely learning. And I thought, well, I don't really want to work for a big pharma company, but since I'm here, let's see how it goes. And so I stayed there for a couple of years. And in 2013, I decided this just didn't fit what I was passionate about. And so I made the decision to go to Biogen, again, still in business development. I, I should have mentioned I was in business development. So I got my job I wanted. But I felt even after five years, I still had a lot more to learn. I had done a little bit of transactions, but not a lot. And I learned how to run processes. I understood term sheets. I learned a lot of soft skills. I understood a heck of a lot more about business and finance, things that were important, but not I didn't feel like I had actually really learned BD yet. And so I went to Biogen because I thought, one, they're on the rise. The BG12 had hit. Steve Holtzman, who's now the chairman of our board, who is this legendary BD guy, said, great, I can learn from him. And he had a great BD team. And I just thought the combination of him, Doug Williams, Al Sandra, George, this is a place that's going to do things. So I went to Biogen in 2013. We did a heck of a lot of transactions. Uh, I had a great time. And quite frankly, I wasn't looking to leave. And I was introduced to Amir Nashat at Polaris, who's also on my board and, and become, you know, a, a fantastic source of ideation and advice, et cetera. And, you know, I think it's an example of how investors are more than investors and can be partners. And I feel that way about uh, Polaris and Amir. And so after a lot of consternation, I ended up joining Camp 4. That was when I was the founding CEO, let's say, not the founder. It had been founded in conjunction with Rick Young out of MIT and Lenzon out of Boston Children's. And I'll hold off on that story because we can talk about that if it's useful. And that was 2017. So I've been the CEO of Camp 4 for the past five plus years. In that time, there's a lot of really interesting things we've done. I've also, interestingly, I founded another RNA editing company, Vico Therapeutics, in uh, Europe with colleagues. Part of that was an homage to my mother, who's passionate about Rett syndrome and RNA editing. So I helped her get that off the ground and that's starting to do pretty well and that's exciting. And I, I'm not involved from an operational perspective. I have a board role and I'm just a really big cheerleader and fan and try to be helpful in any way I can. But my passion and my focus aside from just side projects is really all about Camp 4. Awesome. Thanks, Josh. Great background and, and provides a lot of helpful context for this conversation. And Paul has actually been on this podcast before and we had a great time chatting. Talk to us about how Camp 4 came to be and the initial pull for you to get this team together. 
Yeah, uh, gosh, I'm going to try and pick the parts that maybe are more interesting. So when I joined Camp 4, it was called Marauder. And that's a cool name. And But but here's the reason it was called Marauder. It's because Rick Young, amongst all the other talents he has, is a pilot. And a Marauder is a plane from back in World War II. So it's a Marauder. It's a plane. It's a neat name. So one, its name was Marauder. Two, I would say, unlike more venture creating companies, it was not like, okay, here's the company. Here's the purpose. Here's exactly what it's going to do. And don't mess it up. Just sail it exactly to the island it needs to go to in this boat. It was different. And I distinctly remember Amir saying, look, we have ideas for where to take the science, but honestly, we brought you in because we think it's a blank landscape and we want you to see where you can take it. That's kind of the purpose of it. And I thought that was just fantastic. And so when I first got there, the underlying technology was to make maps of cells. And we still do that to this day. We're very good at that. By maps, I mean, we can understand how the genome is controlled, how every protein coding gene is controlled by non-coding parts of the genome. That's what we were excellent at. And the first intention was, well, perhaps we can use that information and sell it to bigger pharma companies to essentially subsidize our work on our path to figuring out how we eventually will make our own therapeutics. For a variety of reasons, that did not end up working out, but that's okay. You know, we tried it nine months or so, and we came to the conclusion, this is not the right path for the company. Okay, on to the next thing. So then we started getting into small molecules. And if we could control gene expression using our maps to small molecules, And at that time, we had brought in Andreessen Horowitz because there was a big data play here, right? So they joined as partners alongside Polaris. So that was happening. I had started growing the company. So now we had more executives come into the company, or I should say more senior people. We went from when I joined, which was like eight or nine people, to now larger 15 to 20 people. And I should say more than anything else, the biggest learning from this is people and my team is what's made this really both satisfying, successful to the degree it has been, and worthwhile. It's all, this team is fantastic and deserves all the credit in the world for sticking with it. Like they, they've been true to the biology and true to the mission and understanding that we've changed directions. And so we then looked at small molecules. That was not specific enough because we were doing non-cancer indications. I should say we'd almost run out of money a few different times. So all the trials and tribulations you hear about. Oh, and by the way, I also learned in the beginning, Marauder was not a great name for a healthcare company. It can have some negative connotations. And so we decided rather than have a scientific name for the company, let's have an aspirational name for the company that is Camp 4. Second to, it's the, the last camp before the top of Everest. It's also the place in Yosemite where all the greatest rock climbers come to push the boundaries of what's thought to be possible. That feels like us. We're a biology first company. We want to push the boundaries. So in 2020, We knew that our underlying technology was really fantastic, but we still didn't know how we were going to make drugs. And what we wanted was specificity in a very controlled way for gene expression, because we thought there was a lot of diseases to go after. And through a machination of different conversations with Rick Young, who's become just a phenomenal partner to me, we explored the idea of using our technology to identify RNA that arises out of enhancers and promoters. We call them regulatory RNAs that could have a heavy influence on gene transcription in a very specific way. And it turns out through the work of Rick's lab, as well as Camp 4, we believe we're actually really pioneering a whole new area of biology and kind of completely reimagining how to think about transcription and all to the purpose of new medicine. And why this is so interesting is what we found is you could drug these regulatory RNAs, in fact, using antisense oligonucleotides, which can get into the nucleus and have a very specific effect on RNA to increase gene expression. And there are a variety of diseases with a genetic basis where just a small increase in gene expression can be the difference between being very sick and healthy. 
And our point of view was, you know, the technology to date hadn't delivered on that. Uh, enzyme replacement therapies had knocked off a couple of them. AAV is having its own challenges. So we're like, look, there's a big opportunity here because here's the thing about ASOs. They're safe technology. They're in approved products. Yes, they have their idiosyncratic problems, but Ionis has really built this wonderful technology. There's so much data on it. So the way I thought about it is the biggest issue there is not just delivery, but new targets. And so we completely opened the aperture on that. And we found our soul with the company. And this is 2020. We recapitalized the company, quite frankly. We felt we needed to bring in other investors alongside Polaris and Andreessen. We made some really hard decisions. And oh, by the way, the person who's a CSO today, my SVP of research, my CFO, they've been with me since day one. And man, that must have taken a lot of courage. And like we couldn't do it without them. And others have joined on the way. And so fast forward, 5M and North Pond co-led our Series A. We've been making great progress in developing what could be therapeutics for liver and CNS diseases. We should be filing our first IND in Q1 next year. And we were fortunate enough to have a $100 million Series B fundraise uh, in June led by Patient Square, who not only thought about our therapeutics, but thought about the company we wanted to build, which is the next great biotech business. And we know we have a long way. We know we're going to hit our challenges, but I think we have a heavy belief system that with the people we have, we can do this. And we believe in the biology. So lots of ups and downs, like any biotech, right? Everything that we do in biotech is laden with risk and companies are often forced to figure out, hey, what's the best path forward for us? Curious, as you have gone through various iterations of Camp 4 and what you're focusing on, if there's any lessons learned in terms of what has worked well in terms of communicating those changes in direction to the team as you've been leading the team there? A couple of comments. First and foremost, I'd say, you know, for me, uh, five plus years and I'm still learning every week. Truly, I always joke with people, the most inefficient part of building a biotech is the CEO many times. And, you know, it's like we're trying to learn how to fundraise, uh, manage your yeah. board. Be great managers, hire great people, set an ever-moving strategy, raise capital. It is a very hard job in a very psychological way. And one of the things I've learned on the way is the way you can get through that is through relying on your team. They're there. They want to help. Um, Now, they can't solve every problem for you, just like you can't solve every problem for them. But what I'm trying to say is one of the greatest lessons I learned was full transparency. And what I mean is you certainly can't tell people things that could be material or potentially through innocent reasons, get them in trouble, right? Hey, we're going to get acquired by this publicly traded company. Maybe not tell them that, right? But what I do mean is in 2020, which was truly one of the hardest years of my life for all the hard decisions we had to make, instead of, you know, we had eight months of cash left, Camp 4 could have gone out of business. And we said, no, we're going to, if we're going down, we're going down our way. And so the way we did that was full transparency. I remember telling the entire team, here's what's happening. Here's where we're at. We're going to shut down everything we're working on. And here's why. Here's the rationale for it. And here's what we're going to do next. And I cannot promise you it's going to work out, but I can promise you it's going to be an adventure. I can promise you that we have some of the smartest people on the board behind us and in this company. And I believe in you guys. And that if we are successful, it's going to feel really good. And I believe that our investors will do right by us at the end of the day. And I think we just need to do our job you know, explore the science and make it work. And why I'm particularly proud of this and the team is this was 2020. This is the go-go years, right? There's like companies flying off the shelf, IPOs. So, and you know what? We didn't lose a single person, 40 people, not a single person that year. Like there was people that we had to make difficult decisions on that that was the right thing for them and the company, but nobody quit on us for the most part. 
And that to me says a lot about sort of how we handled it. And I'm not talking about me. I'm just saying as a team and that transparency, I'm betting on one another. That's what I think will make us successful in the long run. That was a moment for Camp 4 after being in business for three or four years where we came together, we found our soul, and we understood what it was about us that will make us successful. And to this day, we've learned all these lessons and all about ourselves. And and we carry that with us as we bring new people in. And I believe that if we are successful, that will be the reason why. And Josh, you know, running a company is incredibly hard, as you well know, and, and we're alluding to. And it oftentimes can be a quite a lonely journey for CEOs. I'm curious, as you think about the emotional aspects of running a company, what have you learned about what works for you in terms of managing the ups and downs of running a company? You know, nothing ever goes according to plan. Yeah. It's really hard work, takes longer, requires more capital. What's worked for you and advice that you could perhaps provide other founders? A couple different things. One is you can't do it all on your own. Two is you're going to make mistakes and a lot of them. So get used to it. And that's okay. Three is going to sound kind of weird, but you know, try and be psychologically balanced. And what I mean is truly there's more lows than highs for a variety of reasons that are even out of our control. And that's just the reality. So enjoy the highs, relish in them, take satisfaction in them. But also recognize like this job ain't easy. And the best, some of the best advice I ever got was right when I got started, somebody told me the minute you think you've got this under control and you got to figure it figured out, you're in a lot of trouble. They used a different word than that. I'm, I'm being PC because I told them I'm supposed to do that. Um, <laughs> so that's really good advice. And I remind myself that of every week I'm on this job because in the beginning, when I was like, oh, yeah, I had this, a piano would fall on my head the next day or something, you know? So I think just remember that this is a long term way to go. Even after we raised 100 million and felt good, you know, then it's on to the next problem or working through people stuff. And this is a big piece of it. Trust in people, let them help you. And then what I always tell people too is that a lot of us have executive coaches. That's code for therapists. And that's fine. I realized that exploring and understanding yourself, what your triggers are, why they're your triggers, understanding how to teach yourself to understand other people's point of view. You know, somebody told me recently, oh, I think this person feels misunderstood. And I kind of chuckled because I said, I'm pretty sure the CEO is the most misunderstood job of all. But the point is, is that's okay, right? My job is, and our job is to make sure we try to understand other people and make sure they understand us as well and be very deliberate. So the last thing I'll say is be deliberate about your culture. I think the biggest mistake people can sometimes make is try and manufacture culture. You cannot manufacture culture. You cannot just go hire a bunch of coaches, do a bunch of 360s, do all the Myers-Briggs, hire a great... That's okay, but that's not what culture is. Culture is a set of virtues. It's a set of articulated actions, and it's all by how you model and lead them. I could tell you that transparency is a very important cultural virtue for Camp 4, but if I'm not transparent, it does not matter. And oh, by the way, if other people are transparent and I don't do something about it, then it does not matter. And so you have to be deliberate and think very hard about how you model those behaviors and how you reinforce them. And those will pay dividends only when things get tough. Everybody's a great CEO when things are going well. Everybody's a great investor when things are going well. It's only when things get tough that you really find out what you and your team are worth. And that's where culture shows up. So I would really tell people that took me a while to realize, oh man, I can't romanticize things. Like I have to be very deliberate about what this company is, what's important to me, what's important to my team, and really hire for that and every day invest in it so that it's there. 
Wonderful advice, Josh. I'm, I'm curious if you're willing to unpack that a little bit. And I'll ask a question here, which is, what's one thing that you have stopped doing that you were doing in the early years of Camp 4? I can think of a few examples. And maybe I'll add one other point. One is, you know, my CSO, David, gave me some great advice one time. And, and I think this is the benefit of, I hope, creating a culture where people can say things to me and know that it's okay. I may not always agree. And I may, I will do my best to hear it with grace, but sometimes that's hard. And David told me, you know, Josh, I get that moving at a certain speed is important completely, but sometimes, you know, you get to things more quickly or you move fast. And the problem with that is you can leave people behind and it can feel bad for them and they can feel undervalued. And I'm like, oh man, that's not at all what I want. So it's this interesting balance of like eagerness and patience is, oh man, I really want to, where's the data? Let's get there. You know, and you're trying to solve for things and you have all these different inputs coming. But if you move too fast and you don't bring people with you, it has an incredibly bad unintended effect. That was powerful for me and one that I'm still working on today. That's one aspect of it that I think is important. And I think the other aspect, which is a, a bit amorphous, and I'll use you know my colleague Amir Nashad on this, who, who is a brilliant guy. He would say to me in the early days, I just want you to be the CEO. And I'm thinking, what the heck is he talking about? I am the CEO. What do you mean? This is the three letters after my name. Come on, man. And then it's like, well, I raised this money. Like I, I did a series A. Doesn't that make me the CEO? I was like, no, you're not the CEO yet. 2020 is when I personally believe I became the CEO of Camp 4 because those were moments where people on my board, investors, whatnot, there was massive ambiguity. Decisions needed to be made. It would have been very easy to default to people. I made the decisions through collective feedback, but I made the tough decisions. And man, people were upset. People were angry. People were scared. There were some really difficult weeks and nights. But at the end of the day, I handled it diplomatically and I was rational. But I, I did it even when others didn't have grace. And the reason I'm saying all this is, unfortunately, as a CEO, you have to have grace. You cannot be emotional. You cannot get angry when people are when people are scared or nervous. They're angry, but they're not trying. They don't mean it in a bad way. It's very difficult. As a CEO, that was a big learning for me that I needed to be stable and I needed to be non-emotional to the degree I could be. That's something I do differently now. Earl. I really try and process. I try and think about it. I know I'm going to react, but I go back and I, you know, I really try and exert patience and think about all the different dimensions of it and make those decisions and don't do it unilaterally. And that sounds kind of amorphous, as I said, but man, that shift, you, I try and tell people all the time, like, it's hard to know what it means to be the CEO, but it really is about those features. That's wonderful and contextualized advice, Josh. Really appreciate that. So congratulations on the recent fundraise. I'm curious, one, where you are from a pipeline development perspective. And then second part of the question is, how has fundraising changed for you from the first fundraise you were involved in to now as the company continues to grow and evolve? We, as I mentioned, our first program for Gervais syndrome, which is you know upregulating SCN1A to, to treat the majority of patients that it encodes for NAD101 that have genetic epilepsies and it affects children and adults. We'll be filing an IND for that in Q1. Great. Here's a problem. We're a platform company. We don't want to be a single asset company. So now the trick is we want to make sure there's other programs falling behind it. And the way we define platform means that things that come out of our hands that we've invented go into the clinic, treat patients, and lead to a therapeutic outcome. That, we believe, gets us credit for being platform. So right now, we're calling ourselves a platform company because we do believe we have technology that supports that claim, and we continue to build on that. 
And we do have things that are starting to look like drug candidates, starting with Gervais. We have a urea cycle disorder program about uh, six to nine months behind that. And then we have some other programs closely in tow. But 100 million is not as much money as you think. And when you start getting into the clinic and manufacturing, that money goes quick. So we're really starting to become more sophisticated about our strategy and keeping in mind what's the company we want to be in the long term and what's the realization for what we need to do in the near term. And the realization is we need to raise more capital. And we probably have another private round. And then at that point, arguably, you have to think about public markets because the amount of capital you need and the efficiency about it needs to be available. I think that's a good reason to go public, quite frankly. One thing about private fundraising is for most of us mortal souls, it's the most inefficient process. It's like going down the block, ringing the doorbell, hoping somebody will talk to you, listen to you, and then you have to come back. I mean, it's an incredible... And oh, by the way, everybody else is ringing their doorbells too. I'm shifting to that for a second. So we know we need more capital. And here's what I tell you about fundraising, and it's more from a personal learning point of view. I've never been in a situation where people were throwing money at me, and that's okay. I wasn't a superstar in the field. We didn't have the universally must-have technology to start with. Uh, We weren't the flashiest company. We're a biology-first company. And what I think people know about us, our investors included, is we do what we say we're going to do. And we're very clever on the science. And I think we're very oriented towards where's the drug. And so what I've learned over time for me from fundraising is I've learned how to be more thoughtful and efficient about fundraising. But ultimately, I think you end up with the investors you deserve. And in our case, we've ended up with the investors that share our vision to build a long-term great biotech company, share the principles of what we think are important, and want to actually work with us to build that. Not all investors are like that. And so I do consider them all partners. It's taken a lot of conversations to find them and for them to find us. And that's been hugely valuable. Along the way, I think I've learned about more efficiently getting them the information and and how to fundraise. So now we're no longer in a transactional environment. Before rounds were getting done where you might not even take any time to know the investor. They just saw the list of names investing. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. I'm not saying that's good or bad. Okay. It's probably not great, but, but that was never us. We are always building relationships. Patient Square, I got introduced to Jim Montazzi a year and a half before he led that round. And I just kept saying every opportunity I had to tell Jim about what we were doing and how we were making progress was good. And when when this all started to go south in the industry and I had dinner with Jim, I told him about where we are, what we want to do. And he said, I think it's time for us to start talking seriously. You know, that clicked. I can tell you right now, even before we announced this round, I was thinking about the next round. I've already got a list of investors that gave us really good input about why now is not the right time. And when I go back to them, I hope they see the progress we've made. And we're now listening to what they want to see. So we're going to give them that. I know they're not all going to come in, but that's how I think about fundraising rule. And in this environment, it's not transactional. I think everybody needs to be thinking about relationships. And if you're thinking you're going to raise around in three months, I would say you better hope those relationships are in place because going out cold is really hard. Some great advice again, Josh, on fundraising. As we, as we wrap up this podcast and as we often ask folks to do, I'd love it if you could reflect on your journey. And you've actually already done quite a bit of reflecting on this podcast, which I really appreciate in terms of your own personal journey. What's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self, knowing all that you know now and what you've experienced? Well, <laughs> two pieces of feedback I got when I was younger, because I always sought it out. So, so seeking out feedback is, is important and handling it with grace. I was passionate, which is a polite term of saying I had a temper or I I was very quick to react. Really important to try and be patient and understand other people's perspectives and assume positive intentions. When you create positive narratives, you allow yourself to explore rationale. Why is that person doing this? Where are they coming from? 
And interestingly, when you do that, you free yourself to actually find a whole new range of solutions. That's a skill set I feel like I've only recently unlocked and I'm still learning how to do. But for a long time, I think I had a limited tool set because I only thought about how it affected me and why did this person do this? And, and that shows up whether you're raising money in a board, leading people, managing, working for somebody and trying to get to the next level. So it's not just patience. It's too easy to say, be patient. It's really about trying to focus and understand where other people are coming from and where you're coming from. Why am I reacting this way? What it, you know, and it's like a superpower. And some people figure it out faster than others, but you know, it, it's amazing how impactful that can become. So that that's my advice there. All right, Josh. Well, we, we covered a lot in a short period of time. It was great to have you back on again and and congrats on all the tremendous progress and just uh, hearing your story and, and the resilience that you and the team have showed through all the ups and downs that are uh, natural in, in building a company. Just want to congratulate you for where you are right now. Ah, thanks so much, Rowan. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.